It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. You know, I do a lot of different things on television. Obviously, I anchor a weekly show on Sunday morning, and that involves booking. It involves writing. I write all the scripts for the show. I even write the little headlines at the bottom, which are tricky because you're trying to convey the news, the analysis, the media angle in a relatively short space. Uh, I interview people. Uh, I help produce the show. And also, I appear as a guest, analyst, commentator on other people's shows. I enjoy doing that as well. Um, and there are many other facets uh, to what I do. I'm a reporter. Uh, means I talk to people, I try to find information out, I try to break news on the air, I particularly do this uh, as a correspondent for Special Report, where you're not only trying to find things out and kind of review all of the coverage, read a lot, synthesize it, come up with your own take, uh, help uh, the producer find the pictures and the sound bites that will tell the story effectively and not just be a talking head in that uh, overworked phrase. Um, and there aren't that many shows anymore that take these news packages Everything's live, live, live. Well, I'm standing right here on the corner where an hour ago something happened. So I like doing all these different things. My favorite thing to do on TV is to have conversations. What I mean by that is, uh, you know, especially given the tight time constraints of television where you're always worrying about hearing from the other person and hearing from the third person who's in New York or L.A. and then you got to hit the hard break or the computer cuts you off. Having enough time to not just have QA, QA, but a conversation where you and your guest uh, get to exchange views where it's not scripted, where you react to what he says or she says, she or he reacts to what you say. And I felt like I was able to do that yesterday on Media Buzz with Brett Baer, of course, the anchor of Special Report and longtime uh, Fox News chief political anchor. Um, and it was interesting because one of the things we talked about which is a pretty common theme on the show, was the difference in the coverage between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And in, in 116 different ways, I often talk and write uh, and analyze and pontificate about that. And by the way, this whole idea of conversations, even though right now I'm talking to you, that's, I think, the appeal for me as a listener as well as a podcaster of podcasts because you have the time. You can think out loud, in other words. You can develop a thought. You can stumble. You can start. You can rephrase. I think people appreciate that. It's a little more raw. On television, you got to be a little more polished. Plus, you got to comb your hair. Very important. Can't do television without hairspray. Anyway, in the process of talking about Biden and Trump and the coverage, uh, Brett said something that I just thought kind of crystallized. I thought it was pretty provocative. He said the following. Donald Trump, at some point, it seemed like, broke the media. Like some people who were normal, regular, middle-of-the-road journalists got emotional and they acted differently with Donald Trump than they did any other time. Now, I've tried to say that in a hundred different ways. In my book, Media Madness, uh, where I said repeatedly that whatever Donald Trump's flaws as a president, and that book was about his first year, so a lot of the more serious things that happened hadn't happened yet, and certainly the 2020 election hadn't happened yet. Uh, the disputed election hadn't happened yet. The Capitol riot hadn't happened yet. But nevertheless, I, I saw this in people who I respected, I used to work with, and this is not a right or left analysis. And Brett Baer is not a right or left guy. But he's basically saying the media went kind of crazy. And I think that's true. 
Now, you can take the position Donald Trump was a terrible president, you didn't like him, and look what he did, he didn't concede the election, and all of that. And I've talked about every major controversy Trump has been involved with. But I also saw people who, maybe they lean left, maybe there was liberal bias in their work and the way they framed stories, but they basically tried to be fair. Along comes Trump, and it becomes like this existential crisis for the media, and a lot of journalists, either overtly or on Twitter, or more subtly in what they said on the air, what they wrote on Facebook or Twitter, or what they wrote in their news stories, you know, started to say uh, things about Trump. Uh, you know, you got to, you know, the lying and the fashionables and so forth. And again, this holds whether you thought Trump, Donald Trump was a great president or you thought he was our worst president. But they became, by 2020, part of the opposition. And they stopped pretending it wasn't that they loved Joe Biden so much. I think most reporters like Joe Biden personally, and it wasn't they didn't think he was a great orator, a great thinker, uh, a great leader of, of the American people. But they kind of got behind him because he wasn't Donald Trump. Remember, we were in the middle of a pandemic, the economy was crashing, we were in lockdowns, and Biden was promising a very different way of governing. And the whole other subject is, you know, he ran as a moderate, but he's moved to the left, but, but that's for another time. And so when, when Brett says Trump broke the media, that's what I said in the very last paragraph of my book, Media Madness, which is whatever either great things or damage you think Trump did to the country, the media had so many self-inflicted wounds, the bias, the sensationalism, the mistakes, the arrogance at times, the, the presumption that everybody in the country, except for some crazy people, agreed with them. And I said, it's going to be a long time, if ever, before they get their reputation back. But I thought that Brett nailed it with that phrase. He broke the media. Or you could say the media broke themselves. And, uh, you know, I think for six months of Biden uh, showed a much more favorable approach to the president, who actually got off to a pretty good start. I'm not anti-Joe Biden. I'm not pro-Joe Biden, so just as I'm not anti-Donald Trump, who I've known for 35 years. I'm not pro-Donald Trump. I'm a journalist. Um, and now Biden's having a much harder time because of all the litany of things that you're familiar with, uh, from Afghanistan to the border, and most recently, the fact that he can't get his own party to go along with what he wants to do. And he had the infrastructure bill, and, he, and, and, and it's now being held hostage by the Bernie Sanders agenda. Anyway, we'll see where that plays out. So I thought that that was a good conversation. Uh, if you didn't get a chance to see it, I hope you'll check it out online. Um, also seemed like uh, a guy who I know because I've tangled with him. I once went on a show. He's once on my show. Smart guy who's now reinventing himself, and that's John Stewart. And I, I gave my critique about two weeks ago. I guess it's every other week, this new Apple Plus TV show that Stewart has that, you know, a whole lot of seriousness that's going to leave a whole lot of people. And he, he knew this, that he was not putting on The Daily Show and it wasn't going to be that funny. Well, I just watched the second episode and I thought it succeeded better than the first episode. Uh, for one thing, the whole first part of it was more Daily Show-like. There were a lot of funny lines. It was about Americans and freedom and uh, America, how freedom became this catchword uh, for people in the vaccination wars. You were taking away our freedom, said people who don't want to get vaccinated or aren't forced to va be vaccinated, or you're battling for our freedom for those who think that, yeah, we need uh, vaccinations persuaded or mandated to keep more Americans alive. And there were the inevitable Hitler comparisons. You know, he was always very good at playing tape, and you see people going too far. 
um, the people who want to impose vaccine mandates, even if they're wrong, even if they are out of control, even if government has too much influence over their lives, our lives, they're not Hitler. Hitler was a singular figure in, in world history who killed millions of people. And, um, you know, the question he posed was, well, is COVID more like Hitler since it's killed 5 million people? Hitler, of course, killed more, but COVID's not done. Or are the people who would mandate certain things about dealing with the coronavirus, are they more like Hitler? Well, you can imagine where John Stewart came down. Anyway, John Stewart talked to Jake Tapper on CNN yesterday morning, and I thought I'd read uh, some of the excerpts. Um, Tapper said, look, uh, it felt like, you know, he comes back to Trump. Trump's rhetoric going after journalists at a time when, you know, there was crazy people, a crazy guy setting pipe bombs to news organizations. You would think, said Tapper, that would create a sense of shame and responsibility and the politicians would tone it down. And we're like, nobody cares anymore. There's no shame. And uh, Stewart said, well, uh, I don't know that autocracy is purely the domain of Donald Trump. I think we all have a tendency to be like that. This is fascinating. To grant amnesty to people that are doing things that we would prefer, even if that means they're slightly undemocratic. I will jump in. When Donald Trump pushed executive power to the limits, he wanted to build the wall, even though Congress didn't approve the money. People on his side said, yeah, right on. Joe Biden pushes the limits uh, with executive uh, orders, whether it's on uh, COVID or whether it's on immigration or whether it's on abortion or you name it. Um, the people who don't like his ideology are like, Biden's going too far. And the people who like it says, well, you know, it's justified because it's the old ends justify the means debate. Um, Stewart himself says, there's times when I think to myself, just do an executive order, for God's sake, just get it done. Um, he went on to say that one of our problems, and here he turns media critic, and he's a very good media critic. And look, John Stewart's a liberal guy. You know, he's not exactly going to come down on Trump's side. But remember, he went on the Stephen Colbert show, what was it, a couple months ago, and said, you know what, the Wuhan lab leak theory is probably true. And kind of called out the media for, for banning any discussion of it or saying there wasn't a real debate there. So he recalled seeing a headline in Politico as Afghanistan was exploding into chaos last week. And the top headline on Politico, as Stewart recalls it, was Afghan may not matter in the midterms. And then the subhead was, well, why it might. And uh, Tapper says, well, they have a point. And John Stewart says, but that's our journalism, right? Man, isn't that like how many times have you seen stories about the battle over masks? That, that's the Karen and yelling in the store and people throwing them out and all that. How many stories have we seen about the efficacy of masks or the actual substance of mass. There are some, but the overwhelming majority of stories seek to expose, expose the conflict lines. And that's the thing about, yeah, it may well be true. I said it at the time. By the time the 22, 22 midterms roll around, Afghanistan may be a distant memory and people may be happy that we finally got our American forces out and, and the, the people who were killed and, and the tragedy of it may fade. But Stuart was saying, well, what about Afghanistan itself and not just doing the political ramifications as People were dying and people were desperate to get out of there. Um, so Tapper comes back and says, is this all about the media? You know, sometimes activists on the left, says Jake, risk alienating a culture instead of educating and bringing people in. So here's one more from Jon Stewart. He says, look, I got to talk about performative activism, which basically is what he does, right? When he And I give him all the credit in the world for going up to Congress and testifying and sticking with 
the first responders of 9-11 getting screwed because their health care with the effects that took a long time uh, to manifest themselves where they developed serious illnesses, some died, um, you know, kind of faded from the news. So what does he do? He uses his celebrity and his humor to try to get attention. Um, and Stewart says, well, you know, even though performative activism may be kind of annoying, uh, it gets people's attention. And if the follow-up to that conversation is fruitful, it can be really effective. Um, and then he goes into um, what's happening in California. What's the importance of, of uh, running California? Well, it's the law. Who is it going to impact? And he's talking about this law um, that says toys have to be gender neutral or they have to be labeled as gender neutral or the big box stores have to label it. And, and, and Stuart is like, what? Like, who really cares about that? Who's that going to impact? It reminds me, some people were upset the other day. Things have gotten so out of hand that Demi Lovato wanted to be referred to as just the pronoun that Demi Lovato wanted to use. And, you know, this is just out of hand, he says. Well, I've got really good news for you, he says. You don't know Demi Lovato, so you're never going to have to really be in that situation. And I, did, I thought it kind of brought home the fact that in the Twitter wars, sometimes in our cable news segments, in our op-eds, I mean, there's serious substantive debate. Should we spend three and a half trillion dollars on all this stuff? And then there's the political debate. And then there's just the sort of like, let's argue about celebrities and toys and stuff. Because, uh, you know, everybody knows how to get the clicks. Uh, and, you, and you put somebody's name in there and you attack them and then the mob rises up and then there's the counter-reaction. Uh, is the mob going too far? And, or do we have mob rule or online rule or rule by Twitter? You know, all of which I at times have sort of been forced to participate in because I'm in the news business and the television business and the writing business. But I do think we waste too much time and energy on the BS. That's why I like to have conversations, try to get to the substance. You know, you can't put people to sleep. You have a show, you try to get listen people to watch. You have a podcast, you try to get people to listen. But I do wish we would stop wasting so much energy, hating on each other, venting all this anger, rather than dealing with the real problems, which can be partisan, which can be divisive, not against any of those things. Democracy is always messy. But we could do a lot better. Well, I went on a bit. So let's see if we can do a buzz beater on steroids here. All right, let's try to do this. Number one, uh, as you know, January 6th committee issued a bunch of subpoenas to former Trump aides and advisors, mostly not getting cooperation. Steve Bannon is being threatened by the committee with a charge of criminal contempt, could be kicked over to the DOJ. So late Friday, CNN's Caitlin Collins asked President Biden about uh, these folks defying subpoenas from the House committee. The president... I hope the committee goes after them and holds them accountable. Caitlin Collins says, do you think they should be prosecuted by the Justice Department? Biden said, I do, yes. That's the whole quote. Okay, so that was a misstep. And the reason we know it was a misstep is that uh, Jen Psaki had to come in and do the, you know, clean up on aisle four. No, the president fully respects the independence of the Justice Department. Now, look, there is simply no comparison uh, between that short answer that Biden should not have answered in that way. And what Donald Trump did with the DOJ, and I'm not just talking here about what happened at the um, in the final weeks of his presidency where he was pressuring the acting attorney general, who uh, was going to appoint another guy, acting attorney general, in order to try to get the election results overturned. Because also there was the intervention in uh, the Mike Flynn case, as I've mentioned, in the Roger Stone case. 
uh, uh, the Steve Bannon case. And, and so Trump just did it openly. Trump would, would go on Twitter and say, why haven't any charges been brought against Barack Obama? Why haven't any charges been brought against this? I mean, he would constantly applying pressure publicly and we know privately on the Justice Department. Joe Biden's not doing that, but if you're going to take the stance that uh, I'm not going to, you know, have a um, Merrick Garland on the hotline, I'm not going to push them to prosecute, I'm going to take a hands-off approach, which I think the evidence shows Biden pretty much is stuck to, then you can't give the answer that he gave. And this goes into the debate about Biden and the press. And we talked about this on the show yesterday, which is, uh, is the reason that he doesn't talk to reporters more often. I mean, he takes a handful of questions, uh, usually once a week, sometimes twice a week. Uh, Since he's been president, he's done 10 one-on-one interviews uh, compared to 50 for Trump at this stage, uh, in the neighborhood of 150 for Barack Obama. I mean, he just avoids talking to the press. And there's this argument that, well, his aides are afraid he's going to slip up, he's going to screw up, he's going to say things he shouldn't say, and then they've got to clean it up. And I would say, so what? He's going to make occasional mistakes, maybe more uh, than the average president. He's described himself as a gaff machine in the past. But on the plus side, you're seen engaging, you're seen influencing the news cycle, you generate headlines. When you don't talk to the press, you let everyone else generate the headlines, including all of your opponents and all the media big mouths. All right, moving on to number two. Guess what? All the big multi-trillion dollar spending bills are still going nowhere on Capitol Hill. They're still stalled. There's still uh, an absolute impasse within the Democratic Party. So here's a column by Dan Bowles in the Washington Post, very even-handed Um, really the dean of the Washington press corps at this point. Americans have been wary of too much government. And this is the reality facing Biden and the Democrats trying to do too much. And by the way, they they always package it as a three and a half trillion dollar bill. Yeah, I know it's technically called the Build Back Better or whatever. But like, what does that mean to people? You can't package it on on the price tag. It's going to sound gargantuan, which, by the way, it is. Uh, So like Bill Clinton, like Barack Obama, Dan Balls writes, Biden faces the twin challenges of asking voters to support more government while also trying to persuade the public that government is capable of doing the job. So here's some polls saying that if if we look at, you know, Democrats and Republicans that have very fixed views of the role of government. But if you look at independence, before the pandemic, a bare majority of independents said government was trying to do too much. A year later, in the middle of the pandemic, 56% in that group said government should be doing more. Today, the pendulum has swung back. And if you look at independence, 38% of those not affiliated with either major party say they want a more robust federal government. 57% say government trying to do too much. So that doesn't create an atmosphere in which you can push through simultaneously a trillion-dollar infrastructure bill and anything close to three and a half trillion dollars, even though, you know, you've got climate change, you've got child tax care credit, uh, you've got expanding Medicare and a whole bunch of other things. Um, And here's a figure from Gallup, trust in in government to handle international problems at an all time low, 39%. Meanwhile, Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin have been going at it. I mean, Bernie is like, Manchin shouldn't be able to hold this up. This is terrible. You know, I mean, Bernie thinks this is his bill. So Joe Manchin of West Virginia, um, in response to an op-ed by uh, Bernie Sanders, former Democratic presidential candidate, independent senator from Vermont, Manchin said, this isn't the first time an out-of-stater 
has tried to tell West Virginians what is best for them despite having no relationship to our state. Congress should proceed with caution on any additional spending. I will not vote for a reckless expansion of government programs. No op-ed from a self-declared independent socialist is going to change that. Take that, Bernie. Uh, and you know what? I mean, this sort of symbolizes why the Democratic Party can't pass anything right now. You got Bernie on one side. You got Joe on the other, Joe Manchin. And it's gridlock. And unless President Biden can not just twist some arms, but maybe break a couple of elbows, this thing is going to be stuck for a very long time. And that's why he's down in the polls. Many reasons, of course. But I think this is a main one. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzBeater coming your way in just a moment. All right, number three. Uh, after the January 6th riot, the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee, which is an arm of the Democratic Party, had a great idea. It turns out there were um, a few state legislators who showed up at what became the January 6th riot. They were from the states of Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Michigan. So the DLCC decided, hey, we'll mount a little uh, ad campaign here, and we'll make sure voters know that these folks were there. Uh, and according to uh, a quote in this political piece, when, once these ads ran, uh, ran against these particular state Republicans, their street cred went up. So there were 21 lawmakers who fit this definition of being insurrectionist. Either they attended the rally or um, they promoted stop the steal rhetoric or they called for overturning the results. In other words, it was a pretty broad definition. And they ran these, you know, scary sounding ads saying they want to overturn and, and they want to threaten democracy and so forth. And the only and then nothing happened. Nothing happened. The only thing that actually happened is, is one Republican legislator uh, from West Virginia who live-streamed himself, this is hysterical, uh, not funny, obviously, in terms of the larger picture, but the uh, intellectual decision <laughs> to run a video live-stream himself entering the Capitol shouting, we're in, we're in, Derek Evans is in the Capitol. Now, he resigned after being arrested uh, two days after January 6th. Okay, if you're arrested and you're videotaping yourself, probably not a good platform on which to run for re-election. Story number four. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, the Secretary of Transportation, getting a lot of heat for belatedly disclosing, and this uh, was revealed by Politico's West Wing playbook, that unbeknownst to all of us, since the middle of August, he has been on paid Paternity leave. Now, um, he has wanted to spend more time with his husband, Chastin, and their two adopted newborn babies. And when I first heard about this, well, first of all, I mean, they should have just come out and said it at the time. So it looked like they were hiding something. Second of all, you know, my, my reaction was good for him. Like, why shouldn't he, like any other new parent? Uh, and there's been a lot of shots taken at him, some of which I think is, you know, shots taking somebody who was gay. Uh, saying he shouldn't have been able to do this, he's not breastfeeding, and all that. So, uh, according to um, Politico, for the first four weeks, he was mostly offline, except for major agency decisions that couldn't be delegated. He's been ramping up since then. Now he's going to still take some time off, but kind of ease back into the job. So National Review has a critical piece and says the following. 
Buttigieg is a cabinet secretary. That's a senior management position on par with being a corporate CEO. There are all sorts of nice things that come with being senior management. Good pay, lots of perks, publicity, obsequious underlings. But the trade-offs are typically that in return, senior managers are asked to put in more time, get away from the job less easily, and lack the job security sometimes granted to ordinary workers. That's the deal. It's what you get when the buck stops with you. And I'm sympathetic to this argument. You know, um, it's not that the world would grind to a halt if the Secretary of Transportation takes a leave. But the second point that National Review makes is we are in the middle of this crisis, really, of a supply chain disruption that the administration says the transportation department plays a key role in. That's why Buttigieg is on this government task force. You know, it's just starting to show up, I don't know, in my everyday life. You're probably hearing about it. I went to the local grocery the other day, couldn't get my favorite six-pack of Coke Zero. Uh, I figured they were just out, that they didn't have it and didn't have it. I asked the guy who owns the store, and he said, well, you know, Diet Coke and Coke Zero, there's just delays in, in getting it. All kinds of production delays, and, you know, a lot more serious than that. And when it gets to be toilet paper, that's what I'm going to panic. Uh, you know, you got, they've opened the Port of Los Angeles now 24 hours a day. You've got all these container ships backed up. You know, this is a global problem. Now, Pete Buttigieg is not the President of the United States. He wanted to be. So it's not like saying, you know, Joe Biden has decided to take a month off. But if he's important enough in the administration food chain to be part of solving this global problem, then, um, you know, National Review says this, just because you can take paternity leave in normal circumstances doesn't mean you should take every last day you're entitled to. Look, I'm sure, as it said earlier, um, according to the political report, that he was on the phone, that he was on email, even while he was on leave, working from home, which a lot of us have a lot of experience uh, doing. Uh, and I don't agree with the, you know, well, it's different, he's a man, which, you know, he... He doesn't have, you know, he didn't have to give birth. He doesn't have to recover from that. You know, if there's, if there's paid leave, and there's, of course, a great debate about how far this should extend beyond federal employees, and should private companies have to extend paid leave to both moms and dads, um, then both sexes should be able to take advantage of that, both genders. But I just think if there was nothing to hide here, we shouldn't be reading about it this in the West Wing playbook. DOT should have put out an announcement. Secretary Buttigieg has decided to take some time off on the paid leave provision of whatever with his two newborn babies and his husband. When you don't do that and somebody else breaks it, then you're playing catch up and you're on the defense. Okay, number five is Adele. Uh, six years after the release of her last album, Adele is back. And uh, it's not that I'm a huge Adele fan, but man, she is just breaking all kinds of records. So she put this single uh, on Spotify. It's called Easy On Me. It was released just this last Friday. 24 hours. Sent a new record for the most streams in a single day. Uh, Spotify saying that on Friday, October 15th, Adele's Easy On Me became Spotify's most streamed song in a single day. Fans were celebrating her comeback. Amazon Music said uh, over the weekend, the single received the, the most first day Alexa song requests in Amazon Music history. I don't know if I was supposed to say that because it might trigger your device, but I did. I'm guilty. Um, I think that's pretty cool. I think that's pretty amazing. 
Uh, Neil Cavuto on Fox Friday, when the market went up, I don't know, the Dow went up like 300 points, said this was the Adele rally. Uh, and he said, no one's calling that but me, but I'm calling it the Adele rally. So a lot of people are really, really excited about this. If you look a little further into this, um, during the album is about to come out called 30, her last album, 25. During the six years when she wasn't making any new music, uh, she was going through a, what she describes as a tumultuous few years, a difficult divorce uh, from her husband with whom she has a nine-year-old son. The pair announced their split in 2019. She's talked about going to therapy. So this is a comeback in more ways than one. And she did an Instagram live chat with her fans last week, and Adele was asked what the new album was about. And her response was, divorce, babe, divorce. Well, you know, when you're an artist and you're in the public eye uh, and you go through either good times or rough times, it tends to be reflected in your art, whether you're a writer, whether you're a playwright, novelist, whether you're a musician, songwriter. Um, you know, your life becomes material and what kind of mood you're in and what your circumstances are, uh, highs and lows, triumphs and tragedies, you know, can be reflected. And, of course, I think people who adore performers like Adele they look for that. They want to know what's happening in their lives. What should we make of these songs if they're more upbeat, more love songs, more somber? And so uh, an awful lot of attention for Adele and apparently an awful lot of sales too, which I guess is the name of the game. Well, thank you for listening on this Monday when there isn't a whole lot of hard news breaking out here in Washington. So we try to delve into some other matters of the heart and the mind and the musical soul. Uh, we would love if you would subscribe. You can do it on Spotify, by the way, or on Apple iTunes and lots of other places. Back here tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.